Well, if you're new or newer to Grace, uh, you come right in the middle of a six-week series that we're doing called Arise and Shine. Uh, we normally preach through books of the Bible. We are going to get back to that in, in three weeks from today, and we're eager to do that. But this morning, I want to continue sort of presenting to you something that the elders have had as a vision. We started out the first week speaking to sort of the foundation for this vision, the, the necessity of Grace Bible Church, the, the local church, obviously, but Grace Bible Church in particular. Um, we, we just talked about the reality of, of what it means that we have been rescued from darkness, from the domain of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we talked about the fact that Satan's power is real, that temptation seems to be ever-present, that evil is, it seems, always close at hand. And therefore, as a, as a local church, we are both a refuge for God's people, a place for encouragement and hope for God's people, but also a place of equipping for God's people so that as we continue to live in the midst of a dark world, we are further trained in his word and equipped by his spirit to live in that world. Week two, we talked about being lights, the power that God gives us to be lights in the darkness and the fact that that is both an individual and corporate responsibility, that we do that in our daily lives, but we also do that together as a local body of believers and as Grace Bible Church. Our, our aim is to, within this community, to, to shine the light of the truth of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we linked those statements to Grace's mission statement, disciples making disciples, loving God and people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking at why we do what we do, what, what drives that, how we are to be making disciples by teaching people about Jesus Christ, by modeling for them what Jesus looks like, what following Christ looks like, and then what walking alongside them is like to love and help and serve one another. This morning, my original plan was to focus on our values, but I'm gonna tie that in with next week's sermon. We have described this Arise and Shine campaign as a giving initiative for the future, and so I wanna take time this morning and look at scripture and how it speaks to giving. Uh, since we're asking you, uh, many of you who call Grace Bible Church home, to make a commitment to arise and shine, I think it's incumbent that we talk about biblical motivations and biblical means for giving. And so if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me just give you a little bit of background to the book of 2 Corinthians. It is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the believers in Corinth his relationship with those believers is one that is challenging. Um, there, there are difficulties that come up in that relationship. He spent a great deal of time with them in terms of evangelizing and planting and establishing a church. But then once he left, the, the immaturity of the church, just the fact that it was a young church and false teachers who came in to undermine Paul's teaching immediately began to challenge the work that Paul had done there and the church that God had established. And so there was immorality, there was division, there was undermining of gospel teaching, all of that shortly after Paul leaves to move on to another place. And so when we look in our New Testament, we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians, those two letters. There's really, we know of four letters that, that Paul wrote, those two that we have and two that we don't. And the, the first one we know about from 1st Corinthians because it speaks of a prior letter. And in that prior letter, he addresses the fact that they are tolerating sexual immorality in their midst. They're allowing within the church for there to be immorality that, that they seem to have no problem with. And so he wrote to them to caution them about that. They wrote back and they asked him questions. 
And so 1 Corinthians is the response largely to those questions and also still dealing somewhat with that problem of immorality. The difficulty, though, persisted. He's still apart from them, and so he sends send Timothy to, to Corinth to try to help there. And then we know from 2 Corinthians, Paul himself went back and made what he described in 2 Corinthians as a painful visit, something that did not go well in his interaction with the Corinthians. He eventually leaves and sends a third letter that is described as a severe letter. Second Corinthians alludes to it again. So we have this visit that happens. We have a, a letter that's written. After that severe letter, he is preaching in Troas and he is awaiting word on their reception of that letter. It was Titus who took that letter and he is eager for Titus to come and meet him and tell him how they responded. Did, did they respond to his severe letter? Was there repentance? Was there any kind of positive response? And so when they finally join together, 2 Corinthians 7 recounts this, Titus comes with the news that Paul has been praying for, that there has indeed been repentance, that, that the people are embracing Paul again, they are wanting to see Paul again, they, they have come to understand some of the error that has gone on in their midst, and it is a then encouragement to Paul, and so that's when he writes 2 Corinthians. And so this is a, considered one of Paul's most personal epistles. It, it, it really speaks to his heart in terms of ministry. It, it speaks to his joy for their repentance. It, it also is still very firm. He understands the immaturity there, and, and he's still concerned that they stay firm in sound doctrine, and so he's rehearsing again sound doctrine. But then he's also urging them to get back to the work of ministry. There's been this sort of, back and forth, wavering, misunderstanding, um, even conflict, if you will, that they've had with Paul. And now that there is repentance, his desire in 2 Corinthians is to say, okay, let's get to work. Let's get back to glorifying and serving God and ministering. And so that's what comes up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to pick up in verse 1, and we'll read just the first two verses to start with, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You see him speak of this overflowing generosity of the believers who are in Macedonia, in a different region. He's talking, using them as an example for the Corinthians. And he's talking about this incredible generosity on their part. As, as Paul, he planted churches, and then as he would travel back to help establish those churches, he would often take a collection there. And, and the goal of the collection was to bring to the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, it, it's spoken about in Romans 15, 26, as a collection for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So what Paul's doing is he's ministering in Gentile areas, and he's trying to give them an opportunity to serve brethren who are back in Jerusalem. The, the believers in Jerusalem had two things generally against them. Uh, they were often considered outcasts within their own communities because they were Jews who were now following after Jesus Christ. And, and, and so often there was either persecution or at minimum there was some level of, of not having community support anymore, being made an outcast. And then there were famines in the region in and around Jerusalem. And, and so this Offering is something that Paul wants to, to help the Gentile believers do a couple of things. One is to help them see 
and appreciate the fact that the Messiah who saved them came from the Jewish line, and so there needs to be some appreciation there that he wants them to see of that, but also he really wants them to see that now Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. You are now brothers with these Jews who are in Jerusalem, and even though maybe you've never seen them or met them, you have an opportunity to care for them, to serve them in some way and to love them, and so he is collecting this, this offering. He speaks of the Macedonians. They were the neighbors of Corinth to the north. And he says that they gave out of extreme poverty as he describes it. He also will point out that the Corinthians had been encouraged to do this before and had started on a collection before and then stopped. If you look down at verse six, 2 Corinthians 8, verse six. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 6, if you look down at verses 10 and 11, both reveal that a year before, he had encouraged the Corinthians to give toward this relief effort, if you will, give to their brethren that were around Jerusalem. And so something probably the fallout between the, the Corinthians, at least their, their feelings about Paul a year earlier, had prevented them from completing the process. They had sort of stopped partway through. And so now they've repented and they have embraced Paul and he is now urging them to excel in this act of grace. Resume what you were doing before and excel in this act of grace. And now this begins in 2 Corinthians 8, really one of the the longest sections in the New Testament on the topic of giving. It is chapters eight and nine, and I'm gonna look at this this morning and help you see three motives that, that God gives us in his word for our giving, as Paul is exhorting the Corinthians. And then we're gonna talk about the, the means, sort of the how-tos of our giving, the motives. God's gracious provision is first. All of our giving is rooted in God's gracious giving to us. All that we do in terms of generosity flows from God being generous to us. Verse one says that the sacrificial giving of the Macedonians was a direct result of God's grace. Let me read you what one commentator says about verses one and two. He says, it's interesting that Paul understands that God's grace does not lighten the Macedonians' afflictions nor remove their deep poverty. Instead, his grace opens their hearts and their purse strings to others. And you see that as Paul's writing about them, he's saying their circumstances aren't changing. They remain in, in, a, in, in a dire situation. Circumstances are still difficult, but God is pouring out his grace on them so that their hearts are moved, so that even in the midst of poverty and suffering, they see this giving as an act of grace. They are taking from what God has given them and they are giving to others. In fact, look down at verse eight a moment, 2 Corinthians 8, verse eight. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is gen genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
verse 9 is clear when he says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me say this right at the outset. If you're here, this is your first time, and you're thinking, a giving sermon. That's just what I expect from the Christian church, is a sermon about money. Let, let, let me start here with you first and say, foundationally, where Paul takes the Corinthians, where Scripture takes us, is back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, look to Jesus. Look to the one who enjoyed the glory, the, the worship, the, all that you could think that is just wonderful about heaven, enjoyed eternal fellowship with Father and Spirit, and divests himself of all of that in order to take on flesh and to come to earth and to suffer all of the indignities and the mocking and ultimately to be crucified. And in being crucified, bearing our sin in his body and experiencing the wrath of God, the judgment of God against our sin. And so before giving will make any sense to you, you must understand the greatest act of grace, the greatest gift that has ever been given is the Father sending the Son to suffer in our place and to die on the cross and then to rise again victorious, defeating the power of sin and death and now offering to you and I that which we have not earned, that which we do not deserve, which is forgiveness and hope and eternal treasure with Christ. And so this giving starts with seeing God's grace. Jesus graciously gave up all of the riches and became poor for those who are spiritually bankrupt in order to give us the greatest of spiritual riches, to give us riches for all of eternity. So our generosity, the, the generosity we like to to maybe tout as, as being ours, is really God's grace in us. It, it's God working through us. It's because we acknowledge the fact that God has given us all that we have. And so whatever we are giving is provision from him. So his grace first. Secondly, we're motivated to give by love. And you see it there in verse eight. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul's saying, I'm exhorting you. You're, you're absolutely right. I am teaching you about giving because you should understand this because that's what we do as God's people. We, we generously give back. But I am not, I am not commanding you as an apostle that this is exactly what you must do because I don't want you to give out of obligation. I want you to give for a much better motive than that. He uses similar language. There's a small letter near the end of the New Testament called Philemon. Paul's writing to Philemon. Philemon had been the owner of a, of a runaway slave. Philemon comes to faith in Christ. His runaway slave, apart from him, comes to faith in Christ. That runaway slave is Onesimus. And Onesimus now begins to help Paul and to minister alongside Paul. And so Paul writes back to Philemon. And he says, listen, I'm not commanding you in what you should do here. He says this in Philemon verses eight and nine, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. For the sake of the fact that you and I are both undeservedly loved by a gracious God, and for the fact that that God calls us to love him and love others, I'm asking you to let Onesimus remain with me and allow him to serve alongside. We are to be motivated by the love of God, 
by his love for us and now our response of love for him and love for those who are made in his image. From the moment God spoke creation into existence, it is all an act of love. It's a remarkable thing when you think about God prior to creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not lacking in anything. They are not sort of sadly in heaven thinking, if only we had a planet down there with people, then we would be complete. God is complete and he is perfect in his nature. He's perfect in every sense. And so the fact that an infinitely good and wise God in need of nothing would speak creation into existence is an act of love. It is his desire to create a people and to display his goodness by, by forming this universe, by establishing the, the laws that govern this universe. We would say the law of gravity and other laws like that. And, and to create human beings made in his image and put them in the one perfectly habitable piece of that universe and give them this glorious, various, wonderful creation to enjoy. That is his love for us. James Petty writes a book called Act of Grace. He notes that God, God then in love, not only made the universe and made man, but then in love gives to Adam Eve. He creates companionship. And so he now allows this one that he has created to experience a, a small measure of the love and unity and community that have been perfectly experienced amongst Father, Son, and Spirit, he now gives to human beings the opportunity to begin to experience just a little bit of that. And so that's why 2 Corinthians 8, 8 says, our giving, the, the, the sacrificial generosity of believers in Jesus Christ is a measure of the genuineness of our love. When we give to the work of ministry for the proclamation of the gospel, for the building up of the body of Christ. When we give to people who are in need, we are responding to and imitating the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for us, the one who took on flesh and bore our sin on the cross. We are imitating him. History is filled with man selfishly taking. Even when God creates Adam, and sets him in this perfect garden and says, you are to enjoy this and eat of it and it is all very good, Adam's response is to believe a lie that God is holding something back, that there's still something more and if Adam must take it, then he, he needs to go ahead and take it himself because God has not given him all that he somehow thinks he deserves. And that's man's nature, to take and to accumulate and to tally for our own gain while tending to be a little bit slower when it comes to opening our hands and to releasing things and giving them. We tend to be very quick to receive the, the bonus or the gain or the advantage or whatever it is. We tend to be a little bit slower when it comes to, to turning that over or giving that away. We become very self-protective about our stuff and our bottom line. That's why scripture says generosity tests the genuineness of our love. If we have been changed, if our hearts have been made new, then it's one thing to say, I love God. It's another thing to say, God, what I have is yours and I'm, I'm gonna give it away and, and give to others because I, I, I love you and I love those who are made in your image. Nothing to act on what we say. 
So motivate it by grace, by love, and then third, by joy, the reward of joy. If you see it in verses one and two again, he speaks again of those in Macedonia, verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, look at those two side by side, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The adjectives are important there in those verses. They face a severe test. They are in extreme poverty. Their situation is difficult. Humanly speaking, this is an ordeal for which they lack resources. And yet, by God's grace, it says they overflow in generosity. And because of that, they are receiving an abundance of joy. The word means surplus, more than could be expected. They are having joy that is exceeding. Even people who don't know Jesus Christ still know the feeling at Christmas of giving a child a gift that's been on their list and watching their face light up and having the joy at, at seeing that, that you've given someone a gift that they delight in. We, we understand that feeling. But what he's describing here is for we who have benefited from the grace of God, who have been saved by him, understanding the joy that comes from being able to give to others and to serve others in that way. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, God warns people who are discontent and who believe that riches are what they need for contentment. And 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says, and, and listen to this in terms of being the opposite of abundance of joy. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If you are looking for the opposite of exceeding joy, all surpassing joy, that's it right there. God is, is kind enough to say that if you let your life be consumed by riches, by money, by craving it, by possessing it, you will be trapped with a surplus of ruin and misery. When he says, pierce themselves with many pangs, it means they face many distresses. We should look at that and say, okay, this, this is actually fairly simple. Abundance of joy or pierced with many pangs dealing with distresses and ruin. Uh, the ones who gave from their own extreme poverty experienced surpassing joy, while those who crave riches he describes as being ensnared in their own misery. When we become convinced that all that we have is from the gracious hand of God and that giving is a way to display his grace and our love for him, then how can it not be a joy to trust him and do what pleases him? In 1 Chronicles 29, after David leads the nation of Israel in bringing offerings for what will become the construction of the, the temple there in Jerusalem, it describes the people as feasting together with great gladness. A few verses later, it speaks of David and the people rejoicing greatly. Let me ask you a question. Does giving feel like a chore to you? Does giving feel like it's right there with paying the utility bill? It's just, okay, gotta do this. What do I need to do? Do you think of giving in terms of what's well, just enough? 
What's enough that'll make me feel good about myself? Or is your giving accompanied by an abundance of joy? Because you are seeing what you have as God's provision to you and you now doing God's work by giving that. If it's not joy and generosity, then you may not understand or appreciate the Bible's motives for giving. Grace, love, and joy. Let's talk about the means of giving. I've got four words in your sermon notes there. Ability, generosity, freely and cheerfully. And we'll move through these pretty quickly. Ability first. So Paul has exhorted the Corinthians, wants you to finish this task that, 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 that you started. And then in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12, look down at verse 12, he writes, for if the readiness is there, you're prepared to do this, it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have. Corinthians are just like us. They're, they're in better straits than the Macedonians, but the principle for both the Corinthians and the Macedonians was the same. Give based on your ability. Give as God has provided. Give in a manner that's proportional to what you have. What he's saying in verse 12 is that some may have said, okay, I, I'm ready to give, I want to give, but I don't think I have enough to give, or I don't think I'm giving enough. I don't even know how to gauge this. And that's what he's responding to in verse 12. He says, okay, if you have the desire, if you have the readiness, then give according to your ability. You can't give what you don't have, so give in proportion to what you do have. That's, that's what he's laying out for them here is essentially proportional giving. He wrote similar instructions back in verse three when he said the Macedonians gave according to their means. They couldn't give what they didn't have, but they could give from what they did have. They could set aside a, a, a first fruits, a portion from what they did have. This, this is a principle Paul had taught the Corinthians before. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 16.1, it says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So as God provides income for you, then take from that and give to him. The New Testament doesn't, speak in terms of the tithe. We see it frequently in the Old Testament, the, the required giving of the Jews, that, that they were to give 10%, and then there were other offerings that were required as well. And we don't see that, that same requirement of the tithe, but we do see the principle of giving according to ability, of giving according to income, of, of giving a portion, a percentage. You, you should be giving a percentage of your income. And, and I would say to you that like every area of the Christian life, we should grow in our giving. If we've been sort of stuck on the same percentage for years and years, then, then, then let me encourage you to pray about that and ask God if he would continue to supply for you, which he will, and, and if there is a way that maybe you can begin to give more according to how God has prospered you. We give by ability. Second, we give with generosity. This, this conversation carries on into chapter nine. And if you look at chapter nine of 2 Corinthians, verse six, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. When he says the point is this, another way of saying that is, is now this, all right? Now, let me have you think about it this way, might be another way of saying it. And then he quotes this, basically like a proverb, a farming proverb, really. It says that when the farmer goes out and he plants, he doesn't look at his bags of seed and go, I, I, think I'll only, 
I think I'll only scatter this much seed. I'm going to keep the rest because that's not doing him any good. He's saying he takes the seed and he scatters it generously because the idea is when the harvest comes, he expects the harvest to, to be commensurate with what he planted. And now Paul's using this in this context of giving. And 2 Corinthians 9, 6 gets taken out of context on a lot of different occasions and basically preaching a, a, a so-called prosperity gospel that if you, you just gotta give to get more and, and, and appeals in some sense to people's greed that the more money you give, the more money you get. But if you read on, he's actually very clear about what he means in terms of the bountiful harvest. Look down at verse eight. Let me read verses eight through 12 of 2 Corinthians 9, because this just explains what the proverb itself means. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. See what he says there? God is able to graciously give his people sufficiency in all things at all times. So he's, he's covered all the bases here that God is able to provide sufficiently for you and I. And so there is, this is material blessing he's talking about. There is sufficient material blessing, but it's enough, he says, for what purpose? So that you can now give away more. That's really the heart of what he's describing here is that he will supply to the giver so that the one who gave may continue to give. God blesses the generous giver with more to be generous with. He gives you more seed to sow, gives you more now to, to minister to others. He continues to enable them to give. Verse 11 is very clear. God does not bless with material wealth so that we can sit back in comfort and bask in our riches and use it all for self, God actually gives in a way that's designed to give us more to give to others, to give to ministry, to give to the proclamation of the gospel. He is enriching us. The person who has learned generosity is enriched by God to continue to be unselfish toward others. That's, that's the blessing of sacrificial generosity. It, it all comes from God. We're already giving away wealth that he has entrusted to us. And as we give it away, then what does he do? He supplies more seed to continue to sow it for his glory, for the sake of his kingdom. All right, that's generosity. The last two are gonna go together here and they're both in verse seven. Second Corinthians nine, verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So our giving is according to ability, to generosity, and then numbers three and four go together here, freely and cheerfully. That verse, verse seven, follows right after the proverb there of verse six, and they are connected, those two verses. So verse seven, in, in the opening part, if you look at verse seven, it, it, it says in our ESV, uh, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. In the Greek it says each just as he decided for himself. And, and I point that out to you for, for two reasons. First, because a lot of the translations like the ESV insert 
must give because they're trying to help us get clarity in what Paul's speaking about. But if we, we take that out, because it's not meant as a command. In, in fact, Paul doesn't use an imperative verb here. He's careful to avoid it because that's exactly the point. It's not must or should. What, when you connect verses six and seven, what he's saying is you may sow sparingly or you may sow, bountif- you may sow bountifully. Each does as he decides for himself. There is no law here. There is no, as he uses the word, compulsion. That's that's the point when we say of giving freely. Now that doesn't disregard the fact that's very clear that God looks on the heart, that God is, is seeing the giver and seeing our attitude about giving, that God who supplies all sufficiency desires that we give and be generous and he sees whether or not we freely choose to do so but it is speaking about freedom from compulsion and giving out of grace and love and a desire for joy. The the other element I think of verse seven that's so important is that very first word you see there, each. And that's that's in the Greek text, each or every is the, 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 the word there that begins it. It's important to see that. The act of giving to the work of ministry, the act of giving to others is not reserved for the well to do. He is saying each believer, every believer, as you are prospered in some way, each of you should decide to give. The assumption here is that each believer will prayerfully consider how God has blessed and will respond to that by giving. Giving freely and then lastly giving cheerfully. The the word that's in verse 7, reluctantly, not reluctantly, that word has shades of pain, grief, or sorrow not giving painfully, not, not being sad as we give. I'm, I'm giving this, but it's painful for me to give this. That, that's what he's meaning when he says reluctantly, that it's not painful to do so. So even as we give sacrificially, I should not be experiencing pain as I do so, because I know that what I'm doing is pleasing to my Lord who provides for me and who loves me, and so it's a joy to do that. So we should not be sad, but rather cheerful. God does not want people who are, who are grudging about their giving. When he, when he made Adam, and he set Adam in the midst of that glorious, fruitful garden, he called it very good. God delighted in giving to man. He is exhorting us to delight in our giving to one another. So don't give because you feel like you're under compulsion. Don't feel, don't give because you, you're giving sadly because you feel some sort of pressure in some way. God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, let, let me just offer some application on this. If you've been faithfully giving to Grace Bible Church I, and the work of ministry here, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for just entrusting stewardship of your resources to the the church here to use and thank you for answering God's call to support a ministry that that feeds and shepherds you. If you've not been giving and you've been faithfully calling Grace Bible Church home, then I am going to stand on the authority of God's word and ask, why not? I I wanna say something and this this has nothing to do with the Rise and, and, and Shine campaign except for the fact that going through this and thinking about money this way has really forced me to to wrestle for the last few months about my own pastoring and communicating about money and giving. I have been blessed to be lead pastor at Grace for six years. 
And I have generally been reluctant to talk about money and giving. I went back this week just out of curiosity, found a sermon about giving in January of 2018, and then one in the fall of 2020 about holding our life, health, and, and treasure loosely, so a little bit on how we handle money. I am not saying that to you to sort of say, well, I've earned the right here in 2023 to preach a giving sermon. I am saying that because I'm embarrassed. I, I, I speak from scripture to you and you receive God's word faithfully on all kinds of difficult topics, all kinds of areas of sin and temptation that we struggle with and we go to the word and we deal with the reality on that. But I'll be honest with you, for most of my pastoral ministry, I have treated money like it's taboo. Like it's one of those things that we just really don't talk about. And that's not right. There are more than 2,000 verses that say something about money. Not all of them giving, but many of them giving. From Abraham in Genesis 14, giving his 10th in worship of God, to the prescriptions in the Old Testament law about giving the, the expectations and the prescribed offerings, the prophets admonishing God's people that you are not giving faithfully, you are, you, are, you are taking care of all of your own needs and you're not concerned about the Lord, to Jesus talking a great deal about money and warning about the temptation of riches. The apostles taught and warned about money. The book of Revelation, even in its ending, speaks of the judgment of a world system that is governed, empowered by sexual sin and lust for luxury. It, it, it again speaks back to a world system that is just driven by power and money. The Bible knows that money can be a wonderfully useful tool by which we can proclaim the gospel by which we can love others, by which we can meet needs, by which we can serve. But the Bible is also very clear that money can pre present an incredible temptation for wrong use in our lives. That's why God's law, prior to the coming of Christ, God's law really governed their handling of money and the giving of offerings. But with the coming of the gospel, now brothers and sisters, our money and our giving are still important but they're now governed by the law of Christ. We've now been set free to Christ to purpose in our hearts to give generously, to love and serve God and to serve others and to love neighbor. I wanna read you a quote. I, I'm pretty sure I put it in the sermon notes because it, it's one, one of the questions in the sermon notes because I love this quote from Tony Payne. He says, not a, God not only graciously saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ, but completely changes us. He turns our cold, inwardly curved hearts into generous, outwardly flowing hearts that love other people. God does not want to haggle with us for a bit more of our time and money. He wants us to be new people. That is a profound way of summarizing what I think we've seen this morning in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Friends, be sacrificial and generous because your creator has already given you all that you have and because you love him and you love people that are made in his image. Give because your provider wants you to trust him for everything and to trust that even if I give this, my provider knows my needs and I can rest in him and he will bless me with joy for giving. Give because you know that God is eager to supply more seed for you 
to scatter. And because he's able to take the seed that you and I sow and to bring about a harvest of righteousness. Give because the Lord who is overflowing in grace to you and I wants to pour out more grace on your life and further enable you to glorify him. Give because of the privilege it is to serve a risen king and to declare his greatness and be part of spreading the message that Jesus Christ has come and given his life for sinners, that you can be saved and forgiven and have eternal life if you will turn to him and trust in him. And finally, give sacrificially and generously because the one who provides for you loves you with an everlasting love and he loves your cheerful giving. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious and loving. We, even as we've sat outside here today, we've just experienced just a little slice of the beauty of creation. As we gather for a meal together in a few minutes, we enjoy the, the gift of fellowship, of community. Lord, for all here who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, We have so much by which we have received your grace. We have experienced forgiveness of sin. We have experienced the treasure of abundant life, of peace, challenging circumstances. Lord, you have have blessed us immeasurably. Thank you. Thank you for being generous beyond our wildest imagination. And now, Lord, would you continue to to take our hearts formerly cold and and bent toward wanting to hold fast that which is ours and claim it and cling to it? And would you help us to be more and more open-handed? Would you help us to be people who love to, long to give to those who are in need, to the ministry of the word, to the, the, the ministries you've set before us that you desire for us to do? Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning for whom this simply comes across as just some legalistic message on handing over money, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw them to see the glorious beauty of a Savior who gave himself on the cross for sinners, of whom we all are, and died in order to rescue us from sin and to give us life. And that now in Christ... We can have hope and forgiveness, identity in him above all else. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Help us to respond with love and grace and joy as we serve others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.